I ask myself this question sometimes. Uh, can you imagine a world without the church? I mean, you think about that for a minute. What if there were no Christians anywhere on the planet? Would you want to be here? I don't think so. What would it look like? You know, in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus is uh, he's talking to his disciples. It's, uh, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, in that passage, he gives us kind of a prescription for what the church's role in the world is. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 reads like this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You, church, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine, church, before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Salt and light. Salt, it changes the taste of everything it touches. We all know that. If it becomes tasteless, why have it? It's useless. Salt is this preservative. It keeps things from spoiling. Light, it removes darkness. If you put up a, uh, if you put up a light high, it, it, it dispels the darkness out of the entire house. And if you don't have light, what do you have? <laughs> Just complete darkness. So when darkness is growing, when darkness of the culture, the society is growing, there can only be one reason why, and that's because the light is fading. A quote that stuck with me uh, for the last, I don't know, 20 years is from Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. He wrote this, if society as a whole seems to be growing darker and darker. It is not the problem of the darkness. The darkness is just acting like its nature. But it is that the light is no longer dispelling the darkness. I think about that, and I think about the words of Christ there in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the church has this very distinct purpose it has this very distinct mission during this church age in which we live. And uh, it is to preserve, if you will, real spiritual hope, real spiritual life. It exists in the world to beat back the darkness until Christ returns. And you just have to look at history or even look at the culture today. Whenever and wherever the church has retreated, or it has pulled back, or it has left, darkness has flooded in and rules the day. Yeah, you can look at uh, history. You can look at the current culture. You can look at a state. You can look in a city, in a neighborhood, where there is the higher quality of the spiritual light of Christ. You have more freedom. You have more peace. You even have more prosperity. When the church leaves, pulls back, retreats, they take Jesus with them, and they, they just kind of say, darkness, we'll leave it over to you. It's a universal truth. 
Paul is speaking of Christ in Colossians 1.17 when he writes this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, you can apply it to countries, you can apply it to institutions, to school systems, to government, to politics. Let me ask you, do we need the church in politics? Uh, Some people will say, absolutely not. Get them out of there. If you retreat the church from politics and from government, who are you turning it over to? You're turning it over to the darkness. Did you know that up until the 20th century, it was customary, even expected, that preachers preach an election sermon before every major election? I've read many of them. You ought to just Google it. Election sermons. I've read many of them, and they bring the light of God's Word to the positions of the candidates. They minced no words. (laughs) They exposed the darkness, and they shone the light of Christ onto the culture around them. These sermons kept the culture centered around the gospel of Christ and kept it from sliding into this view that man is the ultimate authority. But as we know, those days are long gone. We, we in our culture, we've officially told God, you aren't allowed in our schools, you aren't allowed in our government, or our media, or not, you're not even allowed in our bedrooms. We're in charge now, and uh, we're before all things, and in us all things now hold together, and... Uh, Not only do they hold together, but we can make a perfect world as a human society when we make it into our own image. And I would contend that where it has gotten us is chaos. More and more chaos. Now, you may be thinking, uh, I thought you were going to be preaching about the end times and the second coming of Christ. That's why I'm here. (laughs) Here's the connection, folks. The passage that we're going to look at today is how the world will look without the church, without the church's influence. And I think before we read the passage, even though all of the second uh, coming uh, rapture events are not in completely this Matthew 24 passage that we're looking at, I think understanding a sequence of events is important when it comes to the end times. And uh, I don't have to tell you, is, is there any debate how this is all going to come down uh, in the end times? Is there any debate in the church? Everybody agree? Uh, not really, okay? Uh, but uh, I've I got to tell you, I just, it breaks my heart when I see the church fighting, especially when it's fighting about doctrine. And, and over the centuries now, we have had so many eschatological debates over how this is all going to happen. And... Um, I think it has only served the purposes of the enemy, to be honest. So I'm going to put up to you, I think, what is probably the most traditional view of the sequence of events that happen. And uh, let's put it up on the screen. Um, I'm just going to walk you through these real quickly. The church age is where we are right now. Uh, It is from the Pentecost until the catching up of the saints or the rapture, which is a word that is taken from the Latin text for catching up. And uh, then the rapture, the bridegroom coming for his bride, 
Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 details that. And uh, then ensues the, the rapture is the trigger, and there's this tribulation, 3.5 years of deception followed by 3.5 years of desolation or wrath, if you will. And those are the scriptures that detail uh, that period of time, one of which is what we're going to talk about today. Then we have the second coming. And I think there are some Christians who believe the rapture and the second coming are one and the same. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But uh, I believe one happens before the tribulation, one happens after. Jesus, the groom, coming with his bride to reign over the earth. You see, in the rapture, the bridegroom comes for his bride. The second coming, he comes with his bride to reign over the earth in the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign where the enemy is defeated and locked up. And then eventually at the end of that, there is this uh, permanent putting away of the enemy and uh, the new heaven and the new earth where there is no more tears, no more pain, all things new for all eternity. And I got to tell you, I just, uh, I just can't wait, right? Um, Obviously, there's so much more about the end of days than just this. There's the battle of Armageddon. There's the Antichrist, the false prophet. There's the restoration of Israel and the 144,000 converts of the tribulation. And there's the judgment of the great white throne, the distribution of rewards. We could go on and on and on. And as I said last week, it's really not my intent to do an exhaustive study of eschatology in this series. But to see the heart of Christ in Matthew 24, how it is that he wants them to think about the end of days. And today's passage, I believe, is, the, is post-rapture. It's what happens when society is void of real believers in Christ. Let's read the passage, Matthew 24, 15 to 28. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in, the house, in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not yet has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. For false Christs, false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe him. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. When you read about the tribulation in the book of Revelation, the idea of God's wrath being poured out in that second half of the, uh, of the tribulation, um, it's very prevalent. And that's one of the main reasons, I think, to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the bride of Christ, the church. I mean, can you imagine a groom, the bridegroom is Christ, can you imagine a bridegroom saying to his bride, I'm just going to... 
for seven years, I just want to beat you up a little bit, and then I'm going to marry you. <laughs> I just don't think that's the way it happens. We have in Scripture this three and a half years of the tribulation in which mankind is completely deceived. They're all in with this Antichrist. They take the mark of the beast. They establish this one world government. And uh, there is this massive deception that mankind, if you'll just get along with us, if you'll just come along and do what we tell you to do, we can create this, this world that we've always dreamed of without God. Let me ask you, do you see the seeds of that deception in our culture today? I would contend they're very well planted in the culture. I mean, you just think about it. Globalism. Is globalism popular today? We all just need to be one nation of humanity, not individual nations. We need to do away with borders. We just need to all come together as one big happy family. This is the precursor, the, 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 the buying into the deception that we can have a one world existence as one government. Following human leaders. We're looking to human leaders as if they were gods today. The Antichrist precursor. How about this one? Getting the masses to accept behavioral compliance based on the whims of the government. Do we see that happening? Mark of the beast precursor. These things are taking shape. The deception is already rampant, folks. How does deception happen? It happens in the absence of truth. And truth is only present through Christ and His church. And when the church is expressing the truth of God's Word and the reality of who Jesus really is, it can beat back the darkness of deception. I think that should just speak to us where we live today. This isn't just true of the end times. This is always true. And the absence of truth in the tribulation is just going to give rise to what we call this abomination of desolation in the holy place. He says there in verse 15. Where's the holy place? It's commonly known as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And if someone, I mean, you just really want to, um, you just really want to let the Jews have it. You want to do the ultimate disgrace to the Jewish community. What do you do? You desecrate the holy place. It's been, it's been done before. You go back to 168 B.C. Uh, when uh, Syria came in and they uh, took over the Temple Mount and they built a shrine to Zeus. And then on that shrine, they sacrificed swine. What do you think the Jews felt? How do you think they felt about that? In fact, they were outnumbered, but the Jews rallied. That was just over the line. They rallied and defeated them and ran them out. This is called the Revolt of the Maccabees. And uh, there's even a Jewish holiday, an eight-day festival of lights, if you will, to celebrate that event, and it's called Hanukkah. It happens again in 70 A.D. After Christ has ascended in 70 A.D., the Romans come in, 
Titus under orders from Nero, he comes in and he destroys the temple. He destroys it to the, uh, to the extent that not one stone is left upon another. And Jesus talked about that in the beginning of Matthew 24. So this desecration has happened before, but oh, there is coming one. <laughs> there is coming one where the Antichrist will stand in that holy place and he will proclaim to the world that he is the Savior. And Jesus says, when you see this happening, run for it. Run for it. Get out of Judea. Basically because God has had enough. Much of what is happening in the tribulation is this uh, restoration of God's people, Israel. In fact, Matthew is the gospel to the Jews. They've rejected him throughout this church age. They have denied that Jesus is the Messiah, and uh, yet they are still loved by God. He is still pursuing them, and he is still seeking them. And Oh, he's taken them to task before. Remember when he let a whole generation die off in the wilderness because they wouldn't believe in him? There will be this turning of Israel to the truth, this recognition that Jesus really is the Messiah. Many will be saved, but they will endure the tribulation. And Jesus tells, when you see this abomination, and every Jew will know it when they see it, he says, get out of Judea. Flee. Don't wait. <laughs> Jesus even has some compassion if you're pregnant. <laughs> It's not going to be good to be pregnant on that day. He's, he has compassion if it happens in winter. There may be snow on the ground. It may be very unbearable, but you don't want to be staying. One of the things Jesus says is that when it seems like the whole world is falling apart, which it will be, Many are going to be looking for a Savior. I mean, we've had a little dose of it over the last six months that they're just, oh, life is so different than it was in February, <laughs> right? And there is this, uh, there's this hope that we have that somebody will come along and fix this. Maybe some super smart guy will make this vaccine, or maybe, maybe Tony Fauci knows. I don't know. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> somewhere we need somebody to fix our lives. He says in the end times, this is really what's going to happen. And every world religion, if you've studied this, every world religion has their Messiah. They're all waiting for their Savior. They're all waiting for their 12th Imam, or they're all waiting for whatever it is that's going to come one day and make it okay and all right and fix our problems. And when the world is coming apart and the Antichrist rises and says, I can fix your problems, it's going to be an easy <laughs> convincing of the world. And here's why. Fearful people will follow anyone they think will save them. Won't they? Fearful people will follow anyone they think will save them. But you know what? The desolation will only stop when God says it will stop. 
You can run and you can try to get away from it over here and run over here. And Amos talks about this. I love this passage in Amos, verses 18 of chapter 5. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. And this is the illustration. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. <laughs> or he goes home, leans his hand against the wall as if to say, Oh, I'm so glad I'm home. And a snake bites him. No one will be safe. You can run for the hills, but it's, it's going to be tough no matter where you go. There will be no escape from the terror, nowhere to hide for safety. And it'll last for three and a half years. Then something will happen. Something absolutely glorious will happen. It says in the scriptures, the heavens will open. <laughs> and it says there will be a white horse. Wouldn't you just love to see that? We're not going to be here looking up there. We're going to be up there with him. On the horse is Jesus. In the book of Revelation, it says he is faithful and true. He is called faithful and true. He will be riding the horse he will be wearing a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called Word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he will have another name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It just makes you want to say amen, right? Here is why I think it is so important to live with the expectation of these days and to be ready. It will change the way you live now. <laughs> i got to tell you, the last two weeks have changed me. They have inspired me. They have spoken to me at a level that... <sighs> I don't know when. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to get caught in our daily routine and the, the stuff that's going on in our lives, and we look at Scripture, and we're learning, we're being discipling, and we're growing, and we're understanding. But it is something else to think that one day, He's coming. We're going home. We're going to reign with Him. It changes the way we live our day to day. I mean, it is hard. It is hard to anxiously await the return of Christ, to think of all these events, the rapture, the glorious beauty of heaven, the white horse coming in the clouds with Jesus mounted on it, wielding his sword, the complete defeat of the enemy, then living with him in our eternal home, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. It's hard to think about all of that and also worry about your end-of-the-month bills. or your next promotion, or most anything. You know, when I was young, I say a teenager probably, I really didn't like hearing about the second coming. And I think that's kind of common. I didn't really want to hear about that, or if I heard about it, I think that's great, but my prayer was always, Jesus, could you please wait? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I want to live my life. 
I want to see how it all turns out. And I want to get married and I want to have kids and I want to have a career. I want to live the good life. Over the years, my perspective has changed. Not that I'm old. But I look at the world differently. Because when I was young, I never thought about what this world can dish out. I never thought about hurt and pain. And I never thought about failure and broken relationships. And uh, I never thought about the terrible choices that I would make and the consequences to me and those that I love would have to endure. I never thought about pandemics. I never thought about cancer. Well, I got to tell you, my prayers changed, and uh, it's no longer God. Can you wait? My prayer is God, come and get us out of here. I pray, Lord, come and get my kids and my grandkids out of here before they have to endure what this world can dish out. And I've got to tell you, relatively speaking, I've had a great life. <laughs> and, and so my question when it comes to the church, do we understand these things? Do we embrace the mission that he's given to us, the salt and light mission? Is the church still changing the world as salt changes the taste of meat? Are we, ta are we changing the taste of the culture because we exist here? Are we shining the gospel so bright that everybody sees the reality of the living Christ are we continually pushing back the advance of the darkness with the truth of God's Word? You know, when you, when you read scriptures about the end of days and you read scriptures about the church in the end of days, it's somewhat ominous. Paul, in writing to Timothy, writes this, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Whoa! That's not us, is it? The end times church will pay attention to the world. In many ways, it will get its theology from the world. They will buy into the lies of the day. And it says, in so much so that their conscience will be seared. You know what it is when you sear meat? You lock in. You cut it off. You lock in what is already in there. You cut it off from the reality of the truth. Douglas Stauffer wrote this, The last days as they pertain to the church are highlighted by spiritual turbulence. 
During the church's last days, believers will depart from the faith or apostatize like no other time in history. They will, this will happen by giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Furthermore, this apostasy will cause the perpetrators to have their consciences seared. This damaged conscience causes them to speak lies in hypocrisy. People in the church will be targets of heresy. And it says doctrines of demons. And many will buy into it because they want to be accepted or they want to go along with the program and they want to go along with the crowd. And It gets worse in 2 Timothy. Paul says that in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money. They'll be lovers of pleasure. Is any of that going on? It says in the last days, they'll have a form of godliness, and they'll still be having church. They'll still be singing their songs. They'll still be listening to their preachers. They'll still have the form, but they will be denying that that form has any power contained within it. They simply won't recognize the power they have as the image bearers of the divine Lord Jesus. So I ask, do we realize what we have? Do we realize who we are? I thought about, okay, how can I end this, this message? I don't want to end the message on all this negativity. <laughs> and I prayed and I prayed. And I said, nothing was coming to me and nothing was coming to me. And all of a sudden, he says, this is an easy one, Matthew 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is it, folks. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Ah, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, and I would contend this is the only question that ever matters. Who do you say that I am? Church, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, who, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, stone, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys. Remember when you were a teenager and you got the keys? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Who do you say he is? Is he the Christ, the Deliverer, the Son of the living God? Because I will tell you here today, it's all about Him. 
It always has been, and it always will be. It's all about Him. And true believers are drawn into the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life and the relationship that they have with Him. It's not about the form. It's not about the structure. It's not about the institution. It's about Him. And as we proclaim Him, as we live Him, we stand with the saints of the ages past and the ages to come as the church cannot be defeated by the gates of hell. Do we believe that? The gates of hell shall not prevail. We have been given the keys of the kingdom of God. We have been given by the presence of Christ and His Spirit within us authority over the darkness. We have the power to enforce the will of heaven here on this planet earth. Do we know this? Why do we fear? Why do we shrink back? Why do we turn to others for our deliverance? As a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I just want to say this. Enough of it! We are the church, the bride of Christ. One day he's coming. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just am so uh, taken in by the ways in which you have preparing, how you are preparing your church. And we read all these ominous things, and we see a lot of it happening, Father. We see a lot of falling away. We see decline of the Christian church. We see more and more people in our culture becoming not only atheists, but just people who really don't care about faith at all. And Father, we see in the church world so many who are trying to remain relevant and changing even their truths and their doctrines to try to embrace a culture that is growing increasingly dark. And I pray, Father God, that the truth, the light, the salt would be who we are in these days. And with every breath that you give us, we will proclaim what has always been true, what has always been the answer. And we will stand in it, Father. We will not shrink back. We will not buy in. And Father, sometimes we just need to ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to come in such a way that... uh, And we see all these messages in the world and we see all of this uh, migration even away from spiritual things. And it's easy for us to sometimes just sit back and go, well, the world is just going to uh, the dogs and it's just, I don't know, there's anything I can do about it. And uh, oh, Lord, help us not to be that way. We have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and we have been given of the Holy Spirit and we've been given and empowered with the authority of heaven and the keys of the kingdom. And we stand tall. And Father, no matter what happens in the days ahead, no matter what happens in the days ahead, I pray that it will only serve to embolden the passion of God's people to stand for what is true and loving and good and holy, filled with your grace, proclaiming your truth.
give you praise today. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.